We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Welcome to Layman's Lounge podcast, the ministry of the laymanslounge.com. Um, I'm Jason Estopanol, and we're here to where we try to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. So Christianity just doesn't l- live with the professors, but it lives in the minivan and it lives on the river and it lives at the beach and at uh, your front yard and the kitchen table. So anyways, really excited today because we have Chad Bird. Um, I was asking my wife, usually I like to get right to it because no one wants to hear like my own commentary. They want to hear the guy, but I, I want to sort of set the stage for Chad Bird for those of you who don't know him. So let me just give me, just give me three minutes max. Okay, here we go. So he has done everything from served as a pastor, a pastor, a professor, a Texas truck driver. Um, he podcasts um, in a podcast called 40 minutes in the old Testament which is they pretty much just go through the old Testament. And it's so good because they're not know-it-alls. They basically, I was listening to them talking about Samson last week and they were just laughing because those stories are so, so bizarre. They're like, I have no idea what's going on here, but these are the, the three things we do know anyway. So I recommend that you got that to you 40 minutes in the old Testament. Uh, he's contributed articles to Christianity today, the gospel coalition, Lutheran forum, bunch of others and some great books of reality including night driving notes from a prodigal soul which we'll be discussing in part today and forthcoming unveiling mercy 365 daily devotions based on insights from the old testament hebrew um and that sounds heavy or something right when you hear that but i was just reading a little bit this morning and when i was laying in bed and by the time i was done Chad, I was levitating. I thank you for that. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. <laughs> um, I, should, I should put that as an endorsement on the cover. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So, Chad, brother, thanks for joining us. I, I do appreciate you making making some Texas time for us. Yeah, you bet, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's, uh, I've been looking looking forward to the discussion. It's always good to to get together and talk about the intersection of real life and theology. You know, a lot of people hear theology and they think, oh, you know, it's just kind of this uh, up in the castle, just, you know, highfalutin discussions. But theology has to do with just daily life, you know, relationships and disappointments and failures and struggles. And that's, uh, that's what I love to write about and to talk about. So looking forward to our discussion today. So good. Because that, I mean, that's literally the bulk of our, the bulk of our lives is struggle and disappointment and just carrying around a body of flesh so so as we jump in i wanted to um i wanted to just so here was that part that i was mentioning where i just wanted to say something about chad the reason we wanted chad is because when when many people are sort of lying to themselves and only singing the happy clappy songs at church chad is humming the psalms of lament the language of languishing Okay, when others are reading about the so-called victorious Christian life, he's observing raw reality and writing books called Upside Down Spirituality, The Nine Essential Failures of a Faithful Life. 
So he's not a mere, a mere theorist, you guys. He's not just a theory guy or a best case scenario guy, but a practitioner of humanity and sin and a recipient of continued flow of amazing grace. But isn't that all of us? So I wrote that ahead of time because I wanted to squeeze a lot in there. Like you're, you're, a, you're an every man guy uh, for every one of us. So anyway, so as we start, I'm going to um, first question, I'm going to open with a, a quote from his book, Night Driving Notes from a Prodigal Soul, where he says of the book, and hopefully sort of in this interview, I'm going to tell you my story. I'm inviting you into it. But I'm also inviting you to tell your story alongside mine, to compare narratives of loss, regret, addiction, pain, to compare scars. More importantly, I want us to see our stories in the context of a bigger story. End quote. Whew, that was a long build up, brother. I'm sorry. So here. So uh, why is it that you think your story, especially, Chad, for like people who are already Christians, is one that people will resonate with? Well, I think one of the things that's going to resonate with people is that I kind of say the, uh, I say out loud when <laughs> many of the things that uh, uh, Christians are not always open to saying out loud, that our lives are characterized by multiple failures, major and minor. And these failures are usually something that we try and hide. And I hid mine for years on end. Uh, mine was a, of course, I had plenty of minor failures, but the major failure that I talk about in not driving is how I, I blew up my life when, when at least on the outside, it seemed as if I had everything that, that I had been working toward for, for years. So I, I struggled with, uh, I struggled with, with authenticity for, for a long time. And th actually the writing of that book was a, was a major move forward for me. It was a way in which I opened up about my my sin my past kind of opened the the closet door and just pulled all the skeletons out and looked at them and wept over them and then wrote about them in this right. in this book so I, I think that's one of the things that's, that christians struggle with is you know we we hear so much about mask these days and most of us wear a mask all the time uh and you know i i certainly did for for many years on end the kind of the mask of you know i've i've got myself all put together i've got this christianity thing figured out and uh, I was, was just deceiving myself. And finally, when, when the mask came off and I realized who I really was and what I'd become as a result of very selfish decisions that I made, and then God started putting me back together, I realized that there's great freedom to be found in actually not trying to hide our failures, but in being very open about them and being mm -hmm. authentic and being being free enough in the forgiveness of sins to be able to talk about our sins in such a way that they're no longer condemning us, but rather they're reflective of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. That's one of the things I discovered in night driving is that as long as we feel like we have something to hide, the chains are still wrapped around us. But when that thing that we've been hiding is no longer hidden, but is out there and is confessed as forgiven, then all of a sudden we walk around with a tremendous liberation because we walk around as those who are forgiven and approved by God and Jesus Christ. And when you have that, you have confidence. You have confidence to talk about your failures, confidence to talk about all the mistakes that you made because you're no longer dreading that God is going to come down hard on you, or you're no longer really even dreading what people might say of you because you've said it before them. Mm. And 
then you, you have, you have this confidence as one who is the beloved of God and knowing that nothing and no one's going to be able to, to change that. So in the forgiveness of sins, there is tremendous freedom to be authentic, to be real and to, as I've done, try and communicate that liberation and that realness to, to other people. Yeah. There is something about, it's not like, it's not a misery loves company thing, but there's something about realizing, Oh, not everyone. No one has it together. Like literally no one has it together. Um, as it were before man. Um, I think I, I heard it once someone said something like some of the best pastors are those who are aware of their own carnality. It's like, cause we look at these pastors and you know, like you go there and like, man, that guy's got it. So together, these people got it. So together, what a scumbag I am. Should I give up on this? I am, I am bad at the Christian game. I am bad at this whole scene. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of the way that we usually operate in daily life. Right. I mean, we, we are self-critical to a fault and we look at other people and we compare ourselves to them. It's kind of this comparative righteousness that's always going on beneath the surface. You know, this, mm-hmm. I'm not as good as that guy. I'm not as smart as that, as that girl. And so we tend to diminish ourselves and, and this, we kind of translate that vertically too, because we say that this must be the way that God views me as well. You know, I'm not as good as that person. And so God must also see me as kind of less because of that. So that's, that's the, uh, the detrimental effects of this kind of comparative righteousness that we engage in all the time by comparing ourselves with, with other people. And it's crazy because we, we like know the truth in theory, but we don't know those things like lived out. We don't actually, we sort of, functionally, we don't, we don't live out of the belief of like that we are the beloved of God. Like God loves me. I'm the beloved of God. And we just sort of write that off. You're like, oh, but I still struggle with clicking on this website way too much. Or I still struggle with, uh, be, you know, being mean to my husband. I still am, uh, you know, whatever these things are. So, I mean, it's, it's one thing to be a, a sinner and a wretch before you're Christian you know, oh, I was on drugs, I was crazy. And then it's like, you told us radical stories. And then when these people share their testimony, it's like, you can't really resonate with that because like, well, of course you were a pagan when you were a pagan, but it's like, I'm still a pagan. <laughs> and that's when it hurts the most. And that's when people are ready to throw the, the towel in. And so I loved in the chapter, where the, the chapter called, where the hell are you, God? You said, I felt like God had abandoned me or I had abandoned him. Or we had both grown sick of each other's company. And then you continued on. All I knew was that I had become a person non grata in God's club. Oh, man. I feel like this is where the story ends for a lot of people. And they call it quits on Christianity. Like, can you tell us how that sh- shook down for you? Yeah, yeah. I think that the reason most people end up there is because probably, probably because of the lack of gospel that they're hearing that they're hearing from the pulpit. At least that's been my experience that the Christianity is, is often presented as sort of a, yeah, you were, you were a wretch or you were whatever you were before you came to faith. All right. Now you've been brought to faith you've been brought, we'll say to the foot of the cross, Jesus has forgiven you. He's washed you clean. He's made you holy. And then the message that they often hear is okay. Now empowered by the spirit, leave the cross and go live a holy sanctified life to the glory of God. 
Well, the problem with that is you don't, you don't step three feet away from the cross before you're already on your face again. Now, yeah. what are you going to do? You're going to pick yourself up and try again and make it now six feet and fall on your face again and pick yourself up. You're going to, well, after a while, you're going to get tired of falling down and you're going to realize one of, one of two things are going to happen. One is either you're going to lie to yourself and you're going to pretend as if you're, you're actually one of those people who have it together, or you're going to fall into the pit of despair and think no way I can ever measure up. And so you're probably never going to darken the doors of a church again. And unfortunately, I think that's what we see happening with a lot of people. And the reason it happens is because they're not hearing that you never leave the cross. <laughs> the Christian life is not about getting you to the cross and then sending you away from the cross. No, you park at the foot of the cross, you stay with Jesus, and you never leave. That's the Christian life. It's living in the light of Christ from the moment that he brings you to himself to the moment that he resurrects you from the grave. So I think the reason a lot of people get frustrated and even will, will, will quit Christianity is because they think it, that Christianity is all about this gradual moral improvement throughout your life. Yeah. And that's it, which, yeah. is, which, which is nothing more than basically a, a moralizing of Christianity, turning Christianity into just another, nothing more than another ethical program. Yeah. And it's not. Christianity is the forgiveness of sins. And it is living there with Christ, him living in us. It doesn't mean that we're inactive. Of course, we continue to engage in whatever vocation that we're in. But we do so as those who are the beloved of God, who are forgiven, who are completely righteous in the eyes of God because we're in Christ. Mm. And when we have that, then, then we know that, you know, in, in God's eyes, we're already perfect because we're in Christ. So there's no need for us to do all this good stuff for God. Instead, God's like, do all that good stuff for the people around you. Mm. So give them your love. Give them your good works because I don't need them. Everything that you need from me, God says, you already have in Jesus. And mm. so I need nothing from you. Instead, you know, it, are you full of just desire to do good and to love other people? Great. Do that. That's, that's, the, that's the activity of love as it's engaged through your vocations to the people around you. So there's got kind of a horizontal and a vertical aspect going on here. But anyway, uh, getting back to kind of the point that you were, that you were pointing toward with the quote from night driving. Yeah. I mean, it, if, if we define our lives and our relationship with God by the law, by the shouts and the shout nots, shoulds, must, oughts, all these things that require something else. If our life if our relationship to God is defined in that sort of way, it's always going to be a broken relationship because we're always breaking the law in one way or another in thought, word, or deed. And that just, that demoralizes people. It demolishes them because they realize when they're even a, even remotely honest with themselves that they can't measure up. And that's why the gospel is such good news because God comes along and says, you're right, but, Christ measured up for you and he paid for all your sins. And because of that, you're forgiven because of that. You are just the way that I want you to be because you're, because you're in my son. Yeah. I heard um, some guys say that a, a lot of folks talk like full sermons and full books about the gospel, but not really often the actual gospel. There's not much people able to sort of like literally rest in the gospel because we're trying to, 
you know, engage ourselves in Christian activity and sort of please God. So you said that, um, you, you said, and I quote, there's a time for hallelujahs and there's a time for the, where the hell are you, God? Um, and this is sort of like, I, I think when the, when the Psalms came into your life in sort of a, a more significant way, uh, can you tell us about that and the value that the Psalms have played, how, what, how they formally played, how they did, you know, sort of your journey and then where they are now? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd be, be happy to, I, for the, for a long time, in my adult life, I've been, uh, I've been fascinated by the Psalms. I had begun to actually my, when I was, uh, in my early twenties, I guess it was my, my long-term goal was to memorize the entire book of Psalms. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and in order to facilitate that, I began to, to pray them, uh, in a, on a, a monthly basis. So I'd go through the entire Psalter kept to the same translation month after month after month. And I did this for, for a long time. But, you know, I, as, as happens with a lot of things, we can, we can know something and then we can really know something. And often that transition from knowing something to really knowing something happens because of an experience that we go through. Yeah. And very often that's a painful experience. So what happened with me is, you know, of course, I, I knew the Psalms, had many of them memorized, uh, would, would pray them. But because the reality that's described in the Psalms had not yet been my reality. This feeling of forsakenness, this feeling of deep despair, this feeling of God forgetting us, this feeling of God abandoning us or becoming our enemy. I had not experienced that. It was very easy to just kind of skim over those words and for them not to make an impact on me. Right. So you're saying that there's Psalms that are out there that aren't just like today's coconuts and pineapples and oil of Aaron going down Chad Bird's beard. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the startling things about the book of Psalms is if you begin to look at the various kinds, you find that the majority of them, now this is, this is quite shocking. The majority of Psalms are in one way or another, a lament, not like a small fraction, but a majority of the Psalms are in one way or another, a form of lament. Lament being basically the Psalmist is crying out to God because he is in some sort of trouble. And very frequently he's crying out to God to wake up or asking God how long or asking God why. We or would even never a, say that. Yeah, I know. Or even accusing God. Yeah. Accusing God. Yes. Yeah. It's really, it's kind of a strange disconnect that we have because it's all over the, I don't, I don't know if people are just aren't really spending enough time with the Psalms, but it's, it's pretty hard to miss when you actually begin to pay attention to them. Wow. Yes, there are Psalms like Psalm 23, which we all know, or Psalm 1, which is all about the, the righteous and the wicked and how important it is to be meditating upon the, the teachings of, of the, of the scriptures it's, there's all different kinds of Psalms, but as I said earlier, the majority of them in one way or another are a cry to God, a lament to God. And I don't know why we've lost that in the church, but we certainly, we certainly have, I suppose there's, there's multiple reasons we could, that we could get into, but it didn't hit me in my, to kind of circle back to my own story. So um, I guess we haven't given many details on, on that, but so I, very briefly, so I was, yeah, I was, I was a pastor for a while, and then I was a professor 
at a seminary. I taught Old Testament and Hebrew. And I was in a situation where I exactly wanted to be. All my dreams are coming true. And as I said in the book, when that was happening, all of them also became untrue. Uh, because I basically decided that I would blow up my life. Uh, and as a result, I lost my, my job. I lost, eventually lost my marriage. I lost my career, my reputation, most of my friendships. The only thing I really had left were my two, my two kids, my son and my daughter, had my, my relationship with them. Everything else was gone. And so I lost my identity because I defined myself by what I did before. Yeah. I no longer really knew who I was. So I was just, I, I was lost. I don't know how to, to describe it. And uh, I, I got a job. I, I moved from where I was living in the Midwest to Texas so I could be close to my kids. I got a job in the Texas oil field driving a truck and worked at night on the night shift, thus the title of the book, Night Driving. And out there in the back, in the, in the back country of the Texas Panhandle, dry, working 10 to 14 hours a night, driving in the darkness all alone, God began to do his, his work on me. And one of the ways that he did that is he got me to go back to the book of Psalms and to spend time working my way through these. And it's there that I found this language that I needed because I was, I was just overflowing with, with bitterness and, and almost a rage is the only way that I can describe it. Most of my most of the activity in my mind would have frightened people because it was, it was, it was so violent because I was so angry at everything, hmm. myself, other people, God, the church, you name it. And I didn't know what to do with this because it was like, I wanted, I wanted to get back into some sort of connection with God, but I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to talk to him. Uh, and I didn't even know if he wanted me to, me to talk to him, frankly. Hmm. So when I began to pray the Psalms, I found there this incredibly raw and honest and earthy language that expressed with precision what I was feeling, what I was going through. And that's why I called it the language of the languishing. I was able to discover exactly how to translate my emotions, the, even, the, even the most uh, dark of those emotions, yeah. into, into prayer. And that's, that's the real beauty of the Psalms is that it doesn't matter where you're at. I mean, it doesn't matter if you are, if you're scared of God or, or angry with God or apathetic toward God or wherever you are on this, this spectrum, there's always something in the Psalms that describe that kind of relationship with God. Hmm. And the, the, the real beauty is that when you begin to pray these, First of all, they're God's words to you that become your words back to God. That's what the Psalms are. So he gives you these words and says, all right, these are the words you can say back to me. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. So we are saying back to echoing back to God what he has first said to us. And not only then do these become prayers, but they become a means of restoration that the spirit uses to bring us out of whatever pit that we're in back into the light of, of hope once more. Mm. So that's why, that's why the Psalms became for me, especially the Psalms of Lament became for me just so incredibly powerful is they spoke exactly to the condition that I was in. Mm. And that's, that's why to explain further what I alluded to, uh, 
that's why I moved from just knowing to really knowing mm. because in between there, yeah, I mean, I, I knew that there were lament Psalms. Yeah. I mean, I taught the old Testament. I, I knew this, <laughs> but I didn't really know it because I had never been in the situations that David describes. Sure. I had never felt like God had forgotten me. I never felt like God had turned his back on me. I never mm. felt like God was being unfaithful. Mm. But once that happened, then I realized, oh, yeah, these Psalms aren't just a matter of the head, but they're a matter of the heart. They describe exactly what's, what's going on in someone's life when they're passing through this dark night of the soul or whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, whatever hell people might be, might be going through. Mm. And so I, I've kind of make it, made it, I guess you could say, my mission since uh, all of that happened over 10 years ago with me to, to, to encourage people to spend time with the Psalms. Mm. Uh, even if I mean, you might be as happy now in your life as you can possibly imagine, still pray the Psalms, even the Psalms of lament, because that will end. There will come a time of darkness. It, the sun always sets and it always rises. And so our lives ebb and flow through periods of light and periods of darkness. And it's great now to let those words seep into your heart and mind and soul so that when those days come, when those hard, dark days come, you already have the vocabulary to express what you're going through. That's good. Can, Chad, can you give us, not to put you on the spot, but almost like a, a snapshot of what that might look like or a case study? Like someone might not know what, what Psalm do I grab? Like what's an example, maybe if you could think of it like a certain... Are, are people to go through, just find a certain line that's in the Psalms and apply it to themselves or that, that complete Psalm itself? Or what about if it's like, um, we know David is getting chased by his enemies, uh, but that, that doesn't apply to us, does it? We're, we're just bummed out because we, um, we got in trouble at work because we did some shady business. How, how does that like carry over? Yeah. I, well, the, the Psalms are, the Psalms are very specific and they're also very universal. So they arose out of very specific situations. So for instance, Psalm three was written when David's son Absalom rebelled against him and staged a coup. Uh, there's Psalm 51, of course, was written when David had his affair with, with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah. And those other Psalms where David's trapped in a cave because Saul is chasing him. So a lot of these were written out of very specific situations and some of them, we don't know, you know, what, what happened, why they, were, why they were written. So there is a specificity to them, but there's also universality to them because they do describe, you know, you might not be hiding out in a cave, like with somebody chasing you, but I guarantee you, everybody has been in a place where they feel trapped. Mm. Or it's like, I have nowhere to go. Wow. I mean, a lot of people feel like that this year, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 2020 has been one of those trapped in a cave kind of years. Where do I go? What I, I feel like, you know, I can't move forward. Well, that's, that's exactly what is being described by that Psalm. Or, you know, there's times when people, even very, very close friends or possibly even family members turn against you. Mm. That happens to almost everybody. Well, that's exactly what David is describing in Psalm three, when he's talking about his, uh, his son, Absalom, mm. you know, one of the Psalms that I, will typically refer people to who kind of ask the question that, that you ask is, is Psalm 13. Uh, Psalm 13 is very short. 
and it's easily easily breaks down into basically three different three different sections and it's it's a it's a good example of how most of these kind of psalms work because it starts out with all of these questions that the psalmist is is asking god i'll just i'll read you just a couple of verses so people can kind of get an idea of what i'm talking about so there's a string of questions here <laughs> before i read it let me put this in there you know we are so often told do not question god yeah, well, anybody right. who's Anybody who says that has never read the Psalms because they are full of questions to God. And there's like a whole string of questions here. How long, O Lord, this is Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day long? How long will my enemy be exalted over me. So not only is he asking how long, but he's also saying to God, how long will you forget me? So there's a, there's a very raw, blunt honesty in Psalms such as this. And let me, let me say this, because I think this is important to, to kind of confirm what we were talking about earlier. You cannot talk to God like that, or let me put it this way. There is, a, there is a hesitancy to talk to God like that if you don't know and believe that he is your loving and merciful father. Wow. See what I mean? Yeah. Now, if I were speaking to a, a divinity that I thought was a, a tyrant and might just destroy me in a moment, there's no way that I would talk to him like that. Wow, brother. I would grovel before him. But because I know that God is my father— then I can approach him with boldness and confidence and bluntness and honesty and say, Father, have you forgotten me? Wow. How long is this going to go on in my life? Uh, why, don't, why don't you do something? Why is it taking you so long to actually do something that will bring me out of the situation that I'm in? So that, that, those kind of questions are very characteristic of, of the Psalms of Lament. And, but then this one goes on, and it, he, he shifts from questioning to asking. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. So he moves from questioning to saying, Look at me, answer me, mm. give, give light to my darkened eyes once more before everything is just kind of over. Mm. And then what I love about this Psalm is that, and you see this in other Psalms as well, but there is, there's a shift. So you have the questions in two verses, then you have the petitions in two verses, and then there's one verse at the end. Now notice how, what a change takes place. He says, but. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, it's, it's like there was a gap between the first two sections and that last section, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, you start out asking these really hard questions and you, you, you make these requests. And then how can you end by saying, 
but you know, I've trusted, I'm going to sing, I'm going to rejoice. Well, it doesn't, just because we pray through the psalm in like one minute, does not mean, of course, that that translates into real life. So there's always, there's always a gap between the questions and the petitions and that exclamation of rejoicing. Mm-hmm. And that gap might be a day or a week or a year or a decade. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. But we will get to that point. We will get to that point where we, we switch from lament to praise, mm-hmm. from where the hell are you, God, to hallelujah. Yeah. We just don't know how long. Uh, and, and, and until that happens, we continue to cry out. And we know that God will actually hear and hear and answer us because, you know, he's our father. And so he's going to answer us. We just don't know exactly when or how, yeah. but, uh, but we know that he will. I appreciate that. Cause I, I grew up in tradition where like, you don't even mess with the Psalms, you know, like mm. what the Psalms, huh? What? Like, like we never sang them. <clears throat> um, and I'm trying to make them more part of my life right now. It's, it's pretty difficult. So I appreciate what, what you wrote there and how they, they have to do with your day, your own daily life. So I, I wanted to ask you sort of as a follow-up, like, so when you were praying those sort of things to the Lord, like, have you forgotten me? What, um, what was the turning, the, the turning point, not to say that you've arrived now, cause we're always, you know, we're slouches, but like, what was like sort of a turning point where he was like, here I am, or where you realized he was there all, all along, or what was something that sort of happened um, after, you know, the explosion? Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, I guess you could say a series of turning points or a real slow turning point, you might say. It was, for me, I guess the best analogy would be like, if you have a super, super serious illness and you're at the point of death and something, something changes and gradually you begin to get healthier again. Well, that was kind of the way it was for me. There was this gradual recovery. Uh, and there were, there were a number of turning points. Uh, one was that, uh, God got me riding again, to be honest. Uh, I was able to, I had all this, I'd written a lot when, before everything happened with my, uh, uh with my sin and the fallout from that but I had not written much for years. And so I began to put pen to paper again. And that was a way of him using my talent, God using my talent, but also a way in which he was able to kind of start digging around in my soul and to bring some of this back up so that I could get it out there and organize, organize some of my thoughts and kind of just go through everything that I had, that I'd experienced and he, he started bringing people into my life. He brought a good pastor into my life mm. who cared for me and continues to care for me. He, uh, he brought Stacy, my wife, into my life. And that was, a, that was a huge turning point because, you know, here was, you get to the point, I think, where, at least I did, where you don't think that anyone will truly love you. Mm. And for her to love me and for her to uh, accept me and to be willing to join in life with me was a, was a, was a huge, huge turning point for me. And she continues to be my, my greatest encourager. So there were, you know, little things, big things like that along the way that, that, uh, that made a difference. Mm. And uh, just also the, the fact that I think the more that you, you spend time in the Psalms, the more that you pray, the more that the spirit uses those words, which are truly his words, 
become his words in your mouth, the more he uses those to actually bring you to the point where he, he wants you to be. Mm -hmm. That's good, brother. It's cool that grace comes in many ways, like, like a a good woman, (laughs) like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, a, a nice, you know, not to sound like a hippie, but sometimes like a sunset or something, there's times where it's not just all these, um, raw doctrine as it were but like just this common grace that it gives us and and having said that there is an element of the the glorious truth of the gospel just the good old-fashioned gospel and I, i wanted to say something to you and then and then have you speak to it because you did in your book and and it was for in my growing up and i know most people around me it's like we all knew we were saved by grace like we're forgiven we had a two billion dollar debt and and then jesus made it zero we all knew that but without knowing it what i realized it did is every morning i'd sort of read my bible because my and then that would bring me at least to like a five dollar balance with god and then i'd love my wife a little bit better. And that bring, that's like a 20. And then, you know, if you get on the ground, pay with your kids, that's worth 50 bucks because who wants to get on the ground? (laughs) So then, you know, the second you snap back at your neighbor or talk smack, you're back to zero. You know, you didn't lose your salvation, but God's just like, Oh gosh, here we go again. Right. This is is progress. So, and you, I mean, you know, you fully know that you said that many of us, um, em- embrace that way of thinking like the prodigal son. That's almost an example mm-hmm. of that. You said where, and I quote, our father may welcome us back, but we'll need to earn our place again in the family home. That hurts so mm-hmm. bad, but it's, it's so true, right? <laughs> they got to so earn true. it. And then yeah. we'll also need to keep, and then from that point forward, we'll also need to keep the straight and narrow afterward. Can you, um, can you sort of recap that story? And like the insight you got there was, so valuable and and like re- refreshing yeah yeah the 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 parable of the prodigal son is a fantastic example of that because so i think most people assume that the prodigal when he was in the faraway country he was feeding pigs and of course he was hungry enough to want to eat the pig's food and it says that you know he translations will say something like he came to himself or he came to his senses and he's like well you know all these people in my father's house my ser- the servants are eating better than i than i am i'll go home and and I'll make myself a servant again. And most people think that that was the point where he kind of came to repentance, we might say, right? Well, I don't, th- <laughs> I don't think that's, when, that's what happened at all. Uh, he, he, he was just, you know, making a very practical decision. Look, I'm in a very bad place here, uh, and uh, I've lost all my money. And, you know, if, if I'm willing as a Jew to eat pig feed, then I'm in a really, really bad place. So he kind of came up with a plan whereby he could repair his relationship with his father and maybe work his way back into the good graces of the family by making himself a servant. And there were various levels of servanthood in the first century. Now what he had planned was a a kind of servant that was not, we, not what we think of as a, as a, as a slave. This was a servant who had some freedom and some mobility, and perhaps he would be able to kind of work his way up in the family. again. That's that's what I'm going to do. He thought, this way, you know, I can demonstrate to my dad that I'm not the person I used to be and that I have responsibility now that I'm going to look out for the best, the best interest of the family, so on and so forth. So he had this great plan of repairing his relationship with his father and he goes home and everyone who knows the parable knows what happened, right? The father comes running out to meet him and he won't 
let his son finish his confession. His son starts. His son starts. He's like, you know, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's like his dad basically says, shut up. You know, I, I love you. What are you, what are you talking about? Why do you think I just ran all the way out here to, to meet you? It's because I've been, I've been looking for you ever since you left. Bro, and, and I forgave you long, long before. Mm. So you're showing up. It wasn't like, I think some people kind of had this, this, this impression. So people think, okay, the father's sitting on the porch and he sees his son coming. He's like, ah, okay, I forgive him. I guess I'll go out and meet him. <laughs> no, <laughs> his father forgave him long before he even decided to come back. Dang. So he comes back to forgiveness. And so his repentance does not somehow make his father forgive him. His father forgave him long before he repented. And so he comes out, he meets him and he's, there's, there's no way he's going to allow him to be a servant. He welcomes him back as, as a son, not just with a son. He doesn't like sneak him in the back door. He's like, we're going to throw a huge party. We're going to have a barbecue, bring, bring a keg of beer. Um, we're going to have a party because I thought you were dead, but you're alive. You were <laughs> lost and now you're found. And it's, uh, and it's, I'm sure that if we kind of put that in the first century, there would have been a lot of people extremely offended by this. Mm. How dare he just welcome him back? No questions asked. How dare he forgive him? I mean, most people would have been like, yeah, let him be a servant for a while. Kind of test the waters, make right. sure he's learned his lesson. And if he has, then he can have his old bedroom back, but not before then. <laughs> but that's, that's the scandalous grace of the gospel mm-hmm. that forgives before repentance, that welcomes, that welcomes a sinner home even before the sinner's actually headed home. Uh, that, and that's the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Lis- listeners, listen to this quote that, that Chad said. It's sums that up well he said this love is fright this love talking about this great love from the father to his wayward son this love is frightening to the careful reprehensible to the legalist dangerous to the moralist but if you've experienced it you know it's like being yanked out of the grave and having your coffin lid pried open Woo, I'm getting that tattooed on my back tonight (laughs) Chad but you're, you're man you're so right it um Rare, I'm a, I'm, I'm a very unemotional guy, but when you tell that story, there's, there's few times that my emotions get stirred and, and I, you know, and so many of us, especially in t- these days we're, we're like, we're slaves to our emotions or lack of emotion or whatever. But when I hear that great of that great love that you always hear, Oh, God loves you. Jesus loves the little children. But there's something about when you see it there and you're like, yeah. that really is great love. And so so this, um, you know, this, this prodigal son was coming back and he had set up a qualifier and there's, there's another qualifier we also often put on ourselves. And that is to have full acceptance with God is sometimes contingent on our emotions. And so in your chapter, when love repents us, you brought up, you brought this up saying, why do we focus our motivation? Wait, why do we focus on our motivations for, contri- for contrition? Why do we keep asking ourselves, am I heartily sorry? Do I sincerely repent? Or am I only going through the motions? Behind the veil of our confused emotions and self-scrutinizing, 
the age-old internal battle continues. Our sinful nature is on a crusade and its target conquest is confession. Bro, can you talk about, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of my, one of my mentors uh, is, uh, his name is Rod Rosenblatt. He, uh, he's a father in the faith to a lot, a lot of people. And one of his, uh, one of the quotes that people will, will frequently uh, quote of his is that, all of our repentance is half-assed repentance. <laughs> and, <laughs> totally right. And it, and it is so, so true. I mean, I, people all the time will say, well, okay, so so-and-so says he's repentant, but is, is he sorry because of what he did or because he got caught? And I always think to myself, do you really think you can draw a line between those two? I mean, it, wh- whatever the sin is, I don't care what it is. Mm. We we can't draw these nice little lines within ourselves and say, "Oh, I'm 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 a hundred percent repentant over that thing because I know it was a sin against God and hurt other people." Well, most of the time, our repentance is our the the motivation behind our repentance comes from multiple levels. You know, maybe it's shame, and maybe it's guilt, and maybe it's uh, I you know. I didn't like the the pushback I received as a result of that. I didn't like all the fallout in my life. I didn't like what it what you know that it made other people not like me as much. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy reasons that we are repentant for something. Mm. So to ask for someone to be sincerely repentant is to ask something of which sinners are incapable. Sinners are incapable of being. 100% sincerely repentant because if they were capable of that, they wouldn't be sinners. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? As long as we're, as long as we're sinners, we can't do anything perfectly, including repentance. Mm. So part of our repentance is confessing the fact that we cannot perfectly, sincerely, wholeheartedly repent. Totally. I, instead I we, got, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, instead we, we, here's what, I th- here's what's happening. We are working with an assumption that God forgives us because of our repentance. Yeah, He never right. forgives us because of our repentance. That is not the motivation and the reason for God forgiving you. Your repentance is not the cause of God's forgiving you. That's so good. The reason that God forgives you is because of Jesus Christ. Wow. Period. Full stop. Oh, Should wow. you repent? Yeah, of course. I mean, of course we repent. But our repentance does not, it's not as if God sees us repent and he's like, oh, okay, because of that, I'll forgive him. Mm. Absolutely not. No, Mm. God forgives us for one reason and one reason only, because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for all our sins. Mm. Mm. And yeah, I mean, we, we, we say to God, I confess my sins and yeah, we try and be as sincere as we can, but we got to be honest with ourselves. There's a whole lot of reasons why we end up confessing our sins. And some are pure and some are impure. Mm. But in the end, it doesn't matter because God's not going to forgive us because we're not going to like half forgive us because we're only half sincere. Yeah. He's going to forgive us because of the sacrifice of Christ. The good news is so good news when we hear it that way because we, we attach the emotions, the, oh, I'm going to return and then I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. We don't love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. I literally think I love my daughter more than God. And I, 
And I say that like shame on me, but I think that's a reality. But I know Jesus loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind. And I'm clothed with Christ. Oh my goodness. Wipe a tear from my eye. Like that, that's yeah. hilarious. So Absolutely. It's a, um, so for you, like you, you have, you, you've had ebb and flow and sort of you've, you've come to this new place. Um, and this is where, it, so you were a Christian, you know, then, and then you've had some struggles and, and now you're back and now you're on the mountaintop, right? Is that the reality? Like we often think, but, but you and I both know that the reality is, is I'm still a scumbag. You're still grouchy. My pastor's selfish. We all like want to be famous. It's just like these skeletons in the closet are like punching us in our face every day. We're like, get out of there. So what do we do now? Like we are Christians. What do you do with, with your skeletons? Like, like whatever you're like for me, I have a disagreeable, disagreeable personality. I'm just like not that likable because I'm like a know-it-all and I'm just like, oh, God help me. But um, so how, how do we move forward with that? Or if I'm just snappy with my wife or too selfish with my time? Yeah, well, I think the way that we move forward with it is, is sort of a, it's a daily death and resurrection. I think it's the best way to, best way to put it. So it's, uh, Paul talks in Romans about how we're, we're buried with Christ in baptism and we're, we're raised in newness of life in him. Well, that happens one time at baptism, but it also happens on a daily basis in the spirit uh, taking us and and putting us to death and then raising us up. So we we come to him and say, I, I was a know it all again. I was just all consumed with number one. Hey, use your own examples, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I I lusted. I was greedy. I, whatever you know. And uh, God is is uh, is going to hear that. And he's going to forgive us once again. And he's going to raise us up to newness of life. And we're going to re- go through the same cycle over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, there's, there are times, of course, when we do improve in certain ways, you know, and there's times when we, we sin less in some certain ways <laughs> because we're getting older and it's too hard <laughs> to do anymore. <laughs> That's just the reality, right? Yeah. Or there's times when, you know, God is able to, to work in our lives in such a way that, yeah, I mean, I, so maybe someone was an alcoholic before or they were a drug addict and, and God has brought them away from that. Well, thanks be to God, you know, but there's some things that are at the core of our identity that we're never going to get past. And because we are by nature lustful or by nature greedy or by nature ambitious or by nature, whatever it might be. Well, that's always going to be there because we're, even though we're Christians, we still have this sinful nature. We still carry around this, this old Adam. And we're, so we're like two people at once. Like Paul talks about in Romans 7, right? Uh, the reformers would describe it this way, that we are simultaneously saint and sinner, simultaneously justified as well as, as sinful. So in and of ourselves, we're sinful. But in Christ, we're, we're justified. It's 100% either way. So there is this civil war that constantly goes on within the Christian. And what the spirit does is he constantly puts that old Adam to death and then raises us to newness of life again. Then he does it again and again and again. So that's just going to be the reality, this side of the grave. That's why the Christian life is never easy. It's never going to be because 
our own worst enemy is ourself and we can't escape from we can't escape from ourselves that's why the entire christian life is one of mercy and grace because if it were up to us we'd always screw things up yeah. thank god it's not <laughs> it's entirely up to it's entirely up to christ sure sure thank you so last question for you brother uh, having said all this arriving here like <clears throat> now what though so that is to say for those of us who are forgiven we are resting in christ we understand that we are saint and sinner we are righteous before god but not before men but we're we're praying we're seeking the spirit um we understand we're clothed with christ we believe the gospel we know we're set free what have we been set free to that is to say what does what does this have to do with jogging petting our dogs spending time with our daughters pulling the weeds floating down the river drinking beer yeah yeah sure i think paul sums it up well in galatians 2:20 he says that uh i've been crucified with christ so it's no longer i who live but christ who lives in me and so the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That means that uh, it's no longer I who, not only I who live, but I who work, I who am a husband, I who am a worker, whatever it is, it's no longer I who do it, but Christ who lives in me. Or you could also say the Spirit who lives in me. So what happens is God makes us his own in Jesus Christ. He, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And then he says, all right. I've given you a lot of people around you, I've given you lots of family, friends, neighbors, enemies, strangers, and they are there in order that my love for you can flow out of you to them. So that's what we do. It's, it's it, what in my tradition we always refer to as our, our vocation, our callings. And those are not our job. Our vocations are, we're born with vocations. When I, when I was born, I had two vocations already. I was a brother and I was a son. So I'm in a vocation that calls me to be a brother to my sister and then a son to my parents. And then you, when you get older, you get other vocations. Now I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm, a, I'm an author, I'm a, I'm a speaker, uh, I'm a neighbor. All of these things are the callings through which God uses me in order that he might give love and mercy to those who are around mm -hmm. me. So, I mean, that's, that's a freedom I talked about earlier that I don't, I don't have to look up to God and say, God, what can I do for you? Because if I do, God's going to be like, I don't need anything from you. <laughs> I need absolutely nothing from you, Chad, but there's people all around you that need things. So yeah. do, do that for, do that for them. And these yeah. things we do to people around us, I mean, they don't in some way improve our relationship with God or, you know, win us brownie points with him. This is just the life of love that flows out of the life of the life of faith. So good. That's, that's a compelling, a compelling God, a compelling faith. And it, it resonates with, it just seems like at the core of who I am, who we're created to be. Appreciate a hey brother. Appreciate that. Like, like we had mentioned guys, um, you could check out more at chadbird.squarespace.com. Check yeah, out me, that, that. Can podcast. I correct that one thing? Oh, let me correct the website. Uh, most of my stuff is, is now at, just go to 1517.org, and there's a section there with all my material in it. Okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. 1517.org. He podcasts at 40 Minutes in the Old Testament. Super good, super funny. And then can you just give us a quick snapshot on the upcoming book? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, I just finished. In fact, I was just going through the edits uh, this afternoon on the book. It's called Unveiling Mercy. 
And what I did is I, so I used to be a Hebrew professor. I've studied Hebrew for the last 30 years. And I wrote a, a, a daily devotion in which every day I take a Hebrew word or phrase and relate it to a biblical verse where it appears. And then I have a brief devotion followed by a prayer. And in these devotions, I unpack the, the richness of the Hebrew and connect it with Christ and the gospel and the New Testament. So, so every day I'm taking, a, I'm, as I say, I'm giving you a, a little Hebrew gift. A little Hebrew, a little insight into the Hebrew that you can't see in, in English translation. And at the same time, I'm hopefully opening up to you the riches of the Old Testament and then making that, that connection between the Old Testament and Christ in the New Testament. So good. Thank you. So keep your guys' eyes peeled on that. And a lot of what we touched today was from Night Driving, Notes from a Prodigal Soul. I think that was Eric Erdman's. I don't know. How you yes. Say that? Yeah, yeah, that was Erdman's. Yes. So anyways, brother, thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for having me on. It's been fun. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. We came to cheer the sad. We came to lead.